Well, good morning. Uh, go ahead, take out your Bibles as we continue walking through our Life of David series. Next week will actually be the last week. Uh, and so make sure you're here. Um, I know that's a holiday weekend. Kind of we get hit with two holiday weekends this weekend and next weekend. Uh, but make sure you're here uh, as we continue the Life of David series. We're going to kind of start out. I told you last week that it was kind of a two-parter. And we've never really done that here at Redemption Hill Church before. And so if you weren't here last week, don't worry, you won't be lost. Uh, make sure we're all up to speed. Uh, but last week we actually began in this story, in this part of David's life, and we're going to continue that. So we're starting off kind of on a low point. Uh, as Matt said, the life of David in the last 11 years of his life or so uh, were full of just chaos and turmoil as he had walked away and kind of gotten passive and not following God and seeking him. But we're going to begin by the end of our time this morning, uh, building off of last week to see a rise in David's life and kind of turn around. Around, and then next week we will get to end uh, by seeing God's grace completely lived out in his life. And so, uh, so this morning we're in 2 Samuel chapter 14 is where we're going to start. We have a lot of text, so we're not going to read it together uh, this morning, but we'll, we'll kind of walk along and let you know where we are so you can follow along in the text. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen, but we'd also love to give you one if you don't have a Bible. Uh, so there are free Bibles in the lobby and you can take one of those. That's our free gift to you. Um, so pain uh, is something that, that none of us like, and we began talking about this last week. Uh, we want to avoid it, and, and I'm not saying we shouldn't. Uh, pain is something that uh, in a perfect world would not exist. It's something that we were not created to go through, and we try to avoid it certainly in this life. But we started off last week, and I, if you remember, I told you a story about a young girl who was born without the ability to feel pain. She had CIPA, a very rare disease. Uh, very few people have it. But the news stations picked up on this because it was something so rare and something so misunderstood and, and not really understood at all. Uh, and the, the tagline of ABC News's article on this was this, what if pain the one thing that parents try the hardest to protect their children from was the one thing that your child needed most. And we began to really process this. This is a deep thought, pain and, and desiring to avoid it and, and understanding that it's not what we are meant to experience, but yet in a broken world, in a sinful world where sin has entered in and, and, and pain and sorrow and sadness and suffering are all around us, how do we begin to understand it? How do we begin to deal with it? Because if we live in a world full of sin that leads to pain, and we're not able to feel pain at all, it would only lead us to deeper hurt. And so pain in, in essence, in some way, and I know that it's nuanced and we've got to really dig through this and think through this. And this is our opportunity over the last several weeks to really begin to wrestle with our own sadness and our own pain. But in some way, physical pain actually helps lead us to healing or directs us towards salvation from what is taking place that should not be taking place in our life. And then we began to point out, if that's true of physical pain, would it not also be true of emotional pain, emotional sorrow? Uh, I had the opportunity this past week to 
speak at one of the chapels in our uh, local Christian school, Winston-Salem Christian School, and uh, I was talking on friendship and how true friendship really uh, is a reflection of who we are in Christ and how we treat other people, not how other people treat us. And that defines friendship in a way that actually allows to build community as we were designed and created to. But one of the things that I pointed out to the students is that the, the pain that we feel physically and the pain that we feel through verbal abuse or being picked on or the emotional pain that we experience, pain physically and pain emotionally actually affect the same parts of our brain. And so they're connected very similar and in similar ways and affect us in similar ways. That's why some of us, if you've ever been really emotionally hurt on a really deep level, it feels like you got punched in the gut. I don't know if you've ever said that before, but physical pain and emotional pain are very connected. And so if physical pain actually, and we know in a physical way, points us towards some sort of healing that is needed, and we need to be able to feel that pain to begin to move towards healing occurring in our bodies, then would it not also be true of our emotional pain? It leads us to the need for a Savior. And we can't just avoid it, though we want to avoid going through pain, but when we are in the midst of it, we need to learn how to deal with it. We need to learn where to turn in the midst of it. We need to seek the salvation, and the good news is salvation is there. That we do have a God who came to save us, and by his grace, we can be set free from everything in this world that is keeping us from the life that we were created to experience in him. And we can continue to seek after him in all of life. And so this is what we've been getting to see through the life of David. His life has been, had highs and lows, and our, our lives might not have as much high as he has or as much low as he has for some of us, but we can really relate to just the complicated life that David lived. And we can see these healing lessons that David actually goes through and begins to kind of lay out for us. And certainly we started to look at those last week, and it helps us to diagnose our own souls. It helps us to see how to be set free. And then next week, again, we'll see God's grace in his life, because it will, it will come full circle, and we'll be able to see the full story. And a part of David's story, as we'll see, really fits with the story of Scripture. Uh, there's a really good book that I would recommend to you. It's called The Stories We Tell by Mike Osper, and he argues very, very well that we are a storytelling people, and we kind of move through history and, and learning by telling and understanding stories. And by and large, we like stories in a very particular way. Now, some of us don't like happy endings. I know that because you're psychopaths, but most of us, <laughs> right, when we go watch a movie, when we read a book, like we want the happy ending at the end. He says there's a very clear reason for that. That most stories that we tell or most stories that we like, they kind of start off really good and everything's great. And then, then something drastic happens that kind of begins a downturn and disaster kind of strikes. And then a hero emerges. And sometimes that's a man in tights or a woman in tights. And, but sometimes that could be love. In a love story, love happens. Everything is fine, but then there's loneliness and then love comes in. There's always a hero in the story. And then by the end, they kind of work through all the difficulties and 
it ends with a happy ever after. We like those stories, he says, because this is the overarching story of creation. It's God's story. It's what we see in scripture. It's, it's how we relate to God, that we were created to have and experience him in perfect community and everything was good, but then sin and rebellion enters into the world. We need a savior and Jesus comes and he lives for us and dies to pay the penalty of our brokenness, sin, rebellion, and rises from the grave. And in him, we have eternal life, happy ever after. And so when we see the superheroes in our stories, it is an unbelievable picture of Christ and him coming. When we see love in a story, a love story, it's supposed to be pointing us towards the beauty of the love of Jesus for us. And we see this in David's life. And we're kind of in that point where everything disastrous is happening and we're looking for a hero. And today, by the end of our time together, we'll begin to see the hero emerge. So to this point, if you remember, David is a man after God's own heart. This is why God has made him the king of the Israelite people. And he was a shepherd who was taken from the shepherd fields to the palace. And he is a king that brought the ark of the covenant, the presence of God back into the midst of the people. Uh, he has brought peace among the Israelites. He's seeking to put God at the center of all that the Israelite people are, which is why God chose the Israelite people to bring about the Messiah, to reveal to the nations around them what it was like to worship the one true God, to live in his kingdom, to love one another in him. And David had done all of that, but all of us fall short. None of us are perfect. No human being, no thing on earth, no love that you can experience will be the hero that you need. Everything will fail us and we fail others. And so Nathan the prophet comes to David and David realizes his sin. And he repents, but he's still struggling with what that looks like in his life. God forgives him. But then God says that there will be ripple effects. And we began to talk about how you can throw a stone into a pond and you can go back and pick that stone up, clean it up, dry it off. And it would look like it has never been thrown in the pond, but you can't stop the ripple effects. There can be forgiveness in our life, but until God returns and all things are made new, then every choice that we make will affect us and our futures and also those around us. And we see that in David's life and also in his family. We'll see today that he still hasn't fully surrendered to God yet. By the end of our time, we will see kind of a turnaround and a repentance, a true repentance in David's life. But he's still hurting and it's still hurting him and it's still hurting those around him as he has become at this point when we enter into the story in chapter 14, a very passive leader, a very passive father and friend. And the choices are affecting and being passed down to his children. We begin to lay that out very clearly. It's called the harvest principle in scripture, that what you sow, you reap. And we see this all throughout our lives. Now, again, the children of David, us today, we still have responsibility for every choice that we make. But we certainly are shaped and formed by our experiences and what others have done in our lives. And so last week, we started looking at the story of Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom. We introduced Absalom, and we're picking up with his story today. And these are three of David's children and how David's choices have affected them and how their choices are affecting others. So here we are in this story. We saw Amnon, and he was the first son of David, the oldest son. 
uh, and he desired his half-sister Tamar. He abuses her. He actually takes her, and I don't want to revisit and, and open up anything this morning. I know that last week was very difficult, and we tried to handle that, handle that very tenderly, but he, he ends up abusing her, forcing himself upon her, and raping her, and she is left desolate, and he totally just continues on with his life, believing that he gets away with it. But then Absalom comes along, and he is Tamar's brother. He's David's third son. He has a different mother, but David and Amnon are brothers through David. And he gets very, very upset. And David does nothing about it. He does nothing for Tamar. He does nothing for Amnon. And so Absalom eventually, years later, takes matters into his own hands. And he ends up killing his brother Amnon. And still, David is passive. He does nothing. But Absalom runs to Geshur, where he is from. It's where his mother was from. And so he goes to Geshur, and he stays there for a number of years. And again, David does nothing. And we talked about the sin of omission being just as powerful and wrong as the sin of commission. The things that we don't do that we should have just the same effect on us and others as the things that we know we should do and we don't. And in fact, we talked about how the sins of omission are actually the foundation for every sin and every rebellion and every brokenness, because it all begins with us not actually seeking Christ first in everything that we are and everything that we do before we ever act upon it. And David does nothing in the life of his family. He's doing nothing in the life for his kingdom. And we see Absalom going to Geshur, and that is where we left off last week. And we saw that David's heart went out to Absalom. The very last verse of, of chapter 13, he wants to bring Absalom back. He wants to reconnect with him, but he does nothing. His pride completely gets in the way. And so as we get to chapter 14, what we begin to see in verse 1 is Absalom has been in Geshur now for three years. And now this issue has gone from this family crisis. And so how many of you would agree if three of your children, and I know David had a lot of children, we know of at least 19 in scripture, but if three of your children, your firstborn, your thirdborn, one of your most beautiful daughters, uh, all are having this type of crisis in life, it is a family crisis. Uh, David should have brought his family together if he was going to be a good leader and, and had a family meeting. He should have comforted Tamar and sought help for her. He should have dealt with Amnon. He should have comforted Absalom and helped him work through these things, but he doesn't do any of that. And now, because Absalom has run to another place that is outside of David's domain, then essentially it goes from a family crisis to a national scandal. And we're going to see that play out in some of David's decisions here at the beginning of the text. So here we see in verse 1, it says, Now Joab, and if you remember, Joab was one of David's commanders. It was one of his most trusted friends. The son of Zeruiah knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. I know David wants to reconnect with his son. So Joab, verse 2, sent to Decoah, which is about 10 miles from Jerusalem, and brought from there a wise woman. And he has a plan. And so Joab, in verse 3, he tells this woman, this wise woman, whether she was just a counselor or a very, very good actor who was wise, we're not really sure the details of her life, but he brings her in. David does not know her, and he has a plan. We see that played out at the beginning of verse 4. 
When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Alas, alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead, and your servant had two sons. And they quarreled with one another in the field, and there was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. So we can kind of see from the beginning, there's some kind of setup happening. Joab is sending this woman. She's telling this story about a couple of sons. David's got this thing with a couple of sons. And he's got some scandal going on in his family. Uh, But David would do this kind of stuff all the time. He's the king of the people. So he's constantly dealing and judging different situations. So he's not picking up on anything yet, though we know something is taking place. And so she asked the king to rule on this on her behalf because the the townspeople want to take her living son and take his life for taking the life of his brother. And that would leave her all alone and her husband has died. And so that would take out and, and totally destroy the name of her family. So she says, David, I need you to rule on this for me. Show mercy, O king, who I serve. Because the people are going to take my name and my legacy, and I will have no one to take care of me. So David agrees. He's going to make judgment. And then all the way down, go to verse 11. He agrees to protect the living son for his family's namesake. And this might maybe tug on David's heartstrings a little bit, but he's still not really putting two and two together. Uh, But maybe at this point, he's starting to kind of think about his own family. And so he wants to protect this woman's family. Remember, his heart goes out to Absalom. He desires connectivity with him. And we'll see what I think is happening there in a few moments together. But he desires to reconnect with Absalom. And so certainly when this woman brings this story, Joab knows there's a reason for this story. He told her what to say, that this is going to tug on David's heartstrings. It's going to open his eyes, he hopes, to some things. And then the wise woman from Tekoa praises King David for his gracious decision. But then, very sneakily, she asks if she can speak openly. Uh, Matt Mears and I, Pastor Matt, um, when we were back in seminary, uh, we had a a little friend. I don't know how it started. It wasn't because one of us was saying something tough to the other one. We just had a lot of weird phrases that we used. Every now, I've forgotten almost all of them because I've become mature, at least much more mature than I was. Uh, but every now and then one just comes to mind. And one of the things that we would say all the time to each other before we would say something is, hey, man, can I say something without, getting you, without you getting mad at me? And usually it would be followed up with like, I love you or something like that. But it was just this weird little thing. It was like, can I say something without you getting mad at me? And I feel like that's what she's saying here. And, and so she's basically going, hey, King, can I, can I just speak openly for a second? And, and she just wants to be able to say something that he needs to hear. And that's kind of what she does. And at this point, David catches on. He's kind of like, ah, I fell for this again, right? Because if you remember uh, chapters ago, Nathan came to him when he had sinned with Bathsheba. And Nathan does the same thing. He sets David up with a story. He says, David, can you give judgment? David gives judgment. And then Nathan goes, ha, you're the man, right? You're the man in the story. And David was able to see the sin of someone else's path, but he was unable to diagnose his own heart. 
It's the same thing that happens here. And Joab was with David when that happened with Nathan. And so Joab's like, well, maybe this will work again. We'll just throw this woman in with all the other judgments that David is making. And maybe this will open David's eyes to his own sin, to his own heart. And so Joab does this. And it does actually open up David's mind. He sees it and he asks her, did Joab put you up to this? And she says, yes. Now, just really quickly, as we're telling this story, there'll be a couple of times where I just stop and kind of make an observation. And here's one thing that I want to observe that's a little bit different from last week. And if you weren't here, I'll try to make sure we all understand and are on the same page. But Joab here in this text is actually being a good and loving friend. If you remember with Amnon, he had a friend, Jonadab. Jonadab was not a very good friend, and we parsed that out. But essentially, Jonadab fell into the camp of anybody that I care about, anybody that I would call friend, anybody that I desire to be with and to please. I want to know what their passions are. I want to know where their heart is, and I want to affirm and feed that. This is how I love, and this is typically how we love in the world. It's not real love. We talked about that last week. Um, But it's basically, man, if I want to be close to you, I want to know what you want, and I want you to pursue that with all that you have. Just you have an appetite, chase it. And, And that's how we see love it typically in the world that we live in but it isn't really helpful. And we saw that with Jonadab and with Amnon, that Jonadab could have stepped up in Amnon's life and said, Amnon, you need to realize that this isn't right, that this isn't the thing that you should do. And we are a people who desire to give glory and honor to God and to put him at the center. And he could have opened the eyes of Amnon and saved a whole lot of heartache. Amnon's life, Tamar's life, Just by opening up and telling truth to his friend and loving him enough to care about the decisions that Amnon makes and for them to be the right things that give glory to God. But he doesn't do that because he thinks he's caring about Amnon by just saying, Amnon, if that is what you want, then pursue it and I will help you. And everything falls apart. But Joab... He does in the right way, in a way that David will listen. He knows he can't just go up to David and be like, David, you need to open your eyes, man. Everything that you're doing is bad. You've been a passive king and a passive father. Open up your eyes. He knows David won't receive that. But he loves David enough to speak truth into his life so that David can work through his pain and diagnose his hurt and begin to bring healing into his life by turning to God. And this is what real friends do. Listen, sometimes it's hard. Being a friend is not easy. It is not people-pleasing. We will see that in just a moment in David's life as this story continues to flesh out. But to be a loving friend, we have to love people enough to speak truth into their lives. And if they are a loving friend, then they will love you enough to listen. And it might be hard and there might be a struggle, but we as followers of Christ, and this is what you need to know if you are not a follower of Christ this morning, what you are invited into is the life that you were created to have in the Savior you were created to know. And in him, you can begin to have relationships in the way that set you free and that you don't need to use people and you don't need to get something from them because you can be completely satisfied in your creator and then you can begin to relate to one another in the way that God 
God relates to you. There can be real, genuine, loving relationships. You don't have to fear someone leaving you because you're honest with them. You don't have to fear somebody leaving you because you're honest about who you are with them. You can begin to be fully known and fully loved because we are fully known by God and he has in knowing us perfectly come and given his life for us so that we can be set free from our work and we can be saved through his work by grace. You can only be loved to the extent that you are known. God knows you fully and he loved you completely. And in him, you can begin to reveal that in other people's lives. This is what Joab does here. He, he gets this woman to make this comparison about his son Absalom and it opens the eyes to David to some extent. We think at this point that David understands everything that's actually taking place. But we're going to see that he doesn't completely change. He does see something. His eyes are open to something. And I believe that it's the national scandal that's taking place. David kind of sees everything that's happening. He's going, whoa, if people in Tekoa know this, if Joab's thinking this, there's, there's a bigger scandal taking place within my family. But his pride is still going to keep him from making the right decisions. Joab loves him. His eyes are open, but not to the thing that Joab desired his eyes to be open to. And in verses 14 through 21, David, he points out that he has made an error. He tells Joab to go get Ab, uh, uh, Absalom, go to Geshur, get him, bring him back to Jerusalem. And we see Joab <clears throat> get excite, excited. Excuse me. He said, we see Joab get excited. He thinks that the kingdom is going to come back together, that David is going to be rejoined with his son Absalom, the family legacy is going to be restored, this is good for David, his friend, this is good for Absalom, his son, this is good for the kingdom of Israel. But in verse 24, the king says, as he arrives, as Absalom comes, let him dwell apart in his own house. He is not to come in to my presence. And immediately we see David's eyes were open to something, but not to what God desired for him to see. He's still closed off. He invites his son back. We know his heart is to reconnect, but something in him won't allow him to do it. And this is in all of us. And we need to flesh this out and see what David, what's happening in David's heart. But Absalom comes back but he has to live in his own house in Jerusalem. So he's a part of the family, so to speak, again. But David never sees him. It seems that David realized I need to do something with my family to kind of squash these, these stories, these rumors that are taking place. People are getting word that I don't have my home in order, that maybe I can't lead this kingdom. And so he wants to fix the appearance. How often do we do that in our lives? I know that something is wrong. My eyes have been open to the reality that something is wrong in my life or a friend's life or a family member's life. But really all I want to do is fix the appearance because it's easier. I don't have to do the hard things and I don't have to worry about really working through anything in my own life or helping someone work through something in their life. And if we can just kind of put a band-aid on it and make everything look good and appear well, then everything will be great and hopefully time will heal all wounds. And we do this so often in our lives and it leads to further destruction, further bitterness between people and relationships and anger and frustration. 
it never leads to healing. Listen to me. Not dealing with your own sin and brokenness, not helping walk through other people's brokenness and their own sin is not loving, it is not caring, it is not healing, it is not good for you, it is not good for them. And it will affect you and them and it will affect others around you and them. But this is what we see David do. He fixes the appearance he says, bring him close so that it doesn't look like we're at odds, but I still can't forgive him. I still can't be close to him. I still can't say I'm sorry. I still can't ask for forgiveness. I can't give forgiveness so he can be in Jerusalem and everything will look fine. And that's the goal. But sin will tear us up if your pride keeps you from surrender, if your pride keeps you from repentance, if your pride keeps you from working with other people through issues. And the result is that Amnon, our Absalom, ends up getting more and more angry and bitter, as I said. And so he begins to stew kind of on what's taking place in his own home. And he still wants to, to try to work things out with David. He's going to give it one last shot. David, his father, has rejected him. He is not receiving him. He is not forgiving him. He's not bringing him close. He's not teaching Absalom the things that he has learned from God. He's not teaching Absalom to give glory to God, which is what gave David the position he is even in. It's what he's supposed to be doing throughout all of the kingdom. But we have not even seen the name of God in the text. David turning to him, Absalom ever turning to him, Amnon ever turning to him, Tamar ever turning to any of his kids, any of his family. No one is turning to God anymore. David's become completely passive. He's just making his own plans and doing his own things. And it affects his son. And his son wants to be close with his father. So he'll do one more thing to try to get his relationship back with David. But day after day passes and David won't see him. And there's no recon reconciliation with his father. And listen, if we are not putting God at the center of our lives, whether we know it or not, we're struggling with the same thing Absalom is struggling with. If we are not close to our heavenly father, we will feel empty. We will feel insecure. We will feel like we are not affirmed. We will feel like we are not loved. There will be a disconnect with what we are supposed to experience here on earth with our creator and nothing else will fulfill us. And you will try to seek satisfaction and affirmation and achievement and all sorts of other things as Absalom will do, but it will not ever be present because we are created to be close with our father in heaven. And we'll see how he does not reject us. But time goes by. And seemingly everything is beginning to be okay, but Absalom still wants to be with his dad. And then we see this random, in verses 25 to 27, this totally random explanation of how beautiful Absalom is. Like it just kind of seems like it doesn't fit the text at all. Like David has just rejected Absalom. He's in his own home. He's wanting to be reconnected to David. And then all of a sudden, seemingly randomly, we get this physical description of Absalom. That he was this really handsome guy and from head to toe, right? Like he was just perfect in every way. He, was, he had this beautiful long hair that he shaved off once a year and it would weigh five pounds. Like they're weighing the dude's hair. 
right? Like it, but, but here's what's actually taking place, and it just seems random, but I believe that part of David's denial of Absalom was, as I said, the refusal to pass on to him who God is and how he should view himself in light of who God is. And when that is absent from us and we don't understand that our identity is ultimately found in Christ, we begin to find identity in other things. <clears throat> and that will lead us to those insecurities that Absalom feels because finding your life in something other than Christ and insecurity are opposite sides of the same coin. If you're insecure, it's because there's a deficiency in our surrendering to Christ. And this is what we see in Absalom. I think what we're seeing is that Absalom finds value in his appearance, his power and, and what God has given him in, in an appearance wise. And so he wants to accomplish things to make his dad proud of him. He wants to acknowledge that he looks in a certain way. He's finding his value and worth in his appearance. And this gives us a clue to that that will come out later on in the story. He finds his security and what he looks like. And then the fact that he's winsome and he has power and he can accomplish things on earth. And this, again, is a part of the harvest principle. This is what we saw David doing earlier. And now Absalom has learned from him. And we see this today. Fathers, parents, uh, like just for a moment, I'll speak to you. This, this, this can relate to relationships and friendships as well. But fathers, if you are unfaithful, Studies show that your kids will tend to grow up with commitment issues. If you love money more than anything else, then your kids will tend to grow up materialistic. If you neglect them, then they will likely do the same to their children. Or, as I talked about last week, the pendulum will swing all the way to the other side. They will constantly be trying to prove themselves and that they are not like you. And they will become something like a helicopter parent. If you're a workaholic, then they tend to have identity issues, as Absalom does here. If you gossip or judge all the time, then your children will tend to grow up with self-righteous spirits. If you worship success, your kids will tend to grow up with, uh, with the pressure to do the best in school, to be the best in sports, and to be loved, they need to be successful and accomplished. If you believe that family is everything, then kids will tend to grow up desperate to find the right person. They will desire to have that Mr. Right or Mrs. Right more than anything on earth because they have learned from you that family is more important than giving glory and honor to God and singleness would be the disaster of their life. All of these things lead to insecurities in us. If we put God first, then we can begin to see success properly, family properly. All of these things and those that we pass that down to can rightly handle God's creation and giving him glory through it all. But this is what takes place in Absalom's life. And so look at verses 28 through 31. It says this, Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without ever coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom, still hoping again to make right with his father, sent for Joab to send to him to the king. But Joab did not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. Then he said to his servant, verse 30, see Joab's field is next to mine. And he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire because of course that's what you do when you need somebody to listen to you. And then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, why have your servants set my field on fire? 
And so Absalom, and this is how we don't set fields on fire, I know, but we get so desperate in our lives, don't we? We believe that we need something. We believe that something will satisfy us. We're willing to do anything in life to get something's attention or to achieve something or to accomplish something. And that's all that Absalom is doing here. And sometimes our fields being set on fire or hitting rock bottom, so to speak, are the only ways that our eyes are open to the reality of what we need to step into. I I love the great preacher Charles Spurgeon and one of his sermons he preached on, at times God will set the fields of his children on fire to get their attention. And this certainly gets Joab's attention. So Absalom gets Joab to go and set up a meeting with David for him one more time. And in verse 33, they meet together. And at the end of that passage, it says that David leans in and kisses him. He kisses him on the cheek. And this is uh, ceremonial. Now we can think to ourselves, man, okay, healing's going to begin. Finally, everything is beginning to work out. Absalom's coming to David. David is receiving him. He's seeing him. He's welcoming him. He gives him a kiss and everything is going to be okay. It's not going to be perfect now, but healing can begin, right? It reminds me of something. It's like, okay, David, kill the fatted calf. Put your robe upon him. Your son has come home. Bring the family together. Party and celebrate. And that's kind of what we expect here. But that's not what David does. If we understand what's happening here culturally and we see what takes place just after, then we understand that this is just symbolic. Like what David's doing is just ceremonial, Not a father-son reuniting. It's just a king receiving a servant. He basically is saying, you're welcome back into the family inheritance as the king's sons, but our hearts will remain distant. This could have been a great moment of forgiveness and the beginning of building back this relationship, but instead, it's just a formal acknowledgement that nothing will change at all. And here's what I want us to see here, because I think this is huge for us. David, and one of the reasons his pride is keeping him from reconnecting with Absalom, and I see this all the time in our own lives, is that David is being a peacekeeper instead of a peacemaker. And this is what we tend to do when, and you might say, what's the difference, man? Uh, And I'll explain that. Um, But this is what we tend to do when we're not understanding our identity in Christ and defining our relationships through who we are in him and what he's done for us. We tend to be people pleasers and we tend to think just like David does, I just need to make appearances okay. And we'll do this in our relationships and we will become peacekeepers, not peacemakers. The difference is a peacekeeper, when you're just trying to keep the peace, you don't have to actually deal with the heart of the issue or the actual foundational matter. You don't have to speak hard truths into somebody's life. You don't have to bring love into the issues that are very difficult. You simply have to do whatever is necessary in any given situation to keep the peace. And so you might go to somebody and say whatever you need to say to them to get you two back on the right page together, to make everything okay, to keep the peace. 
There might be two of your friends that are struggling with some different things, and instead of bringing truth into the situation and trying to restore the relationship, you go to one friend and say just enough of the truth to kind of get them to be okay with the other friend, and to the other friend, just enough of the truth to get them to be okay. And so you have the appearance of keeping the peace in your relationships, but you're not actually speaking truth. You're not actually bringing healing. There's not actually a dealing with the difficult pains and sorrows in a way that brings healing and life but will later lead to more pain and more sorrow, where bitterness can grow, where anger can feed. And this is what happens in our lives all the time. We simply have to look at situations and try to give appearances and make peace appear to be what has taken place. Everything will be okay. And I didn't have to deal with anything very, very hard. Maybe it was a little bit hard to kind of bring peace into this situation, but I didn't have to deal with the deep issues. And we do this all the time in our lives. But to be a peacemaker, you have to be willing to dig into the heart of the matter. You have to be willing to love enough to speak truth. We saw this in Joab in comparison to Jonadab. You have to be willing to speak love into somebody's life, even when it's hard, even when it might hurt at first to bring healing. You have to be willing to admit when you're wrong. You have to be willing to repent of that wrong. You have to be willing to seek to make things right, to try to bring reconciliation whenever possible, but certainly to bring it to a place of forgiveness. Being a peacemaker is doing the hard work of discipleship. Bitterness breeds hate. And hate brings hurt. Look at the beginning of chapter 15. After this, Absalom got into himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run around before him. So here he is in Jerusalem, totally do not. Most in peacetime would just ride around on a mule or a donkey all through the city. It's a peacetime. But here he is just pompous. He's got the chariot. He's got the horses. He's got 50 men running in front of him behind him. So everywhere that he goes all throughout the city of Jerusalem, he is showing to the people his power. And he's got a plan behind this. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate in the city where all the business and and different judgments would take place. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is of such and such a tribe of Israel, Absalom would say to him, see your claims are good and right but there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, oh, that I were the judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put his hands and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel and the king who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. So Absalom decides, I'm going to use my power and good looks and my winsomeness to gain favor with all the people. And I will, if I can't get the favor of my father, then, and I can't find my identity in what is greater than me, then I will just embrace it and I'll seek achievement. And Absalom doesn't do 
and show up with all of this power without purpose, right? I mean, he, he's doing everything that he's doing with this plan that he has in mind. So he's going to the gate. He's showing how handsome he is, all the power that he possesses. And then he's going up to people and basically going, man, my dad can't really hear you. He doesn't really have time. And this is what really good politicians do, do don't they? Like, there might not even be a problem, but they make one and then they're the solution for it, right? And this is what he's doing here. There's no problem. We don't have any like defined problem going on with how people are being heard and the judgments that are being made. But he's going up to people and going, man, you have a really good point. I think you got a really good case. I'm sorry that my dad doesn't have time for you. He's not here. I'm here for you. You can see me. You can come up to me. My dad's not here for you. He's in the palace. But I'm here, and if I, and, and if I was king, then I would hear you, and I would rule in your favor. And then when people would try to bow down to him, with the chariot and the horses and the men in the background, he would pull them back up, give them a kiss, and go, no, 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 I'm just one of you. I'm just one of you. I'm just a lowly servant like you and it stole the hearts of the Israelites. Then he came to David and asked him if he could go to Hebron. And Hebron, the reason that he wanted to go there, that's where he's from, that's where he was born. And if you remember David, before he was the king of all of Israel, he was made king in Hebron. And so that was the capital at one point. But then when David moved to Jerusalem, Jerusalem became the capital of his people. And so he goes to where he was born, but also to a people who might be a little ticked off that they used to be the capital and now they're not. And this is where he wants to make his base. And he tells David that he wants to go there to make sacrifices, but that's not at all why he goes. And his numbers continue to grow as he goes to Hebron. Ahithophel, David's main advisor, goes with him. And if you remember Ahithophel, we talked about several weeks ago. He was the grandfather of Bathsheba. And when we talked about David and Bathsheba, we talked about how this would eventually bite David in the backside because Ahithophel is going to seek revenge. And it's taken all of these years to get to this point. But as soon as somebody rises up against David because of decisions David made a decade ago, Ahithophel now goes with Absalom. And so in chapter 15, verse 10, uh, Absalom sends a secret message throughout all the tribes of Israel. It says, as soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is the king of Hebron. Verse 13, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of men of Israel have gone after Absalom. And then David said to all of his servants who are with him at Jerusalem, arise and let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down ruin on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Now, we don't know why David just fleed instead of fighting. We don't know if he was trying to avoid civil war. He just didn't want to kill Absalom. Maybe, maybe he doesn't know how deep uh, seated it is and how many people are with Absalom. And so he needs time to plan and process. But he just decides to flee. And they leave the city. And we see that on the way out, he stops. And he watches all the people that are following him go by. And we don't have time this morning. But we see the people go by in verses 18 through 23. Those that were with him were his bodyguards, his royal messengers, and there were Jews, and there were also Gentiles, the Gittites. And I love how we just see the nations being invited into the people of God as the people of God are following the wrong king and in so doing the wrong God. And we already see God bringing the nations to himself through chaos and destruction. 
One of the Gentiles in verse 21 that comes to David, David tries to send him back home. He's like, you just got here, just go home. Just have peace and and get away from all of the chaos that is taking place. But this one says, I will follow the one true king. He he echoes Ruth really with with Naomi in the book of Ruth, where uh, Ruth says, where you go, I will go. And your God will be my God. And where you go, I will follow. And this is what this man does here for David, even when he hits rock bottom. Because he knows that God has put David to be king of the Israelite people, that God is the one true God and what he desires and what he wills, he will do. And so he goes, I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know this is what God would have for us. So I am with you. And just a quick challenge for us this morning. Is that the heart that we have? God, I don't, I don't know where you're taking me. I don't know what's happening. All of my culture might be telling me to go in a different direction. It seems chaotic. I'm unsure. It's not safe. But I know that you are the one true God. And so whatever may come, whatever may happen, I am with you. I will honor you with all that I am. The men come up, Levites, to to bring the ark with them. And David, we start to see David at this point, our last couple of minutes together, we start to see David awaken. It's like a lion was sleeping and now he's waking up. He's going to begin to lead and he's going to begin to point the nation of Israel in the right direction and make wise decisions all of a sudden. But this is what it took. He had to diagnose the pain and the sorrow and the hurt in his life. And it finally turns him to the only place that there is joy and there is hope and there is healing. So the ark is brought up to him. He's like, no, 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 we can't do that. We've already made this mistake once in our nation's history. The ark must stay in the temple. If God desires to bless me and to use me and to bring me back, he will. But if I die in the wilderness, so be it. I will do what God desires. My life is in his hands. He's finally alive again. He's finally turning to God again. This is the first time he's mentioned the name of God in chapters and years of his life. And he's turning to God and he's going, God, what do you want? I just want to honor you. So he sends the Levites back, but he also, we kind of see the sovereignty of God and the wisdom of a man playing our responsibility because he tells these Levites, go back, take the ark and stay there and then get in good with Absalom and you can report to me. So it's like, God is sovereign. Whatever he desires, great. I'm going to use all of my wisdom to give glory and honor to him. So he sends these men back, and this will prove to be a very good move for him. But he sends the ark back. And all of this is taking place as David is leaving the city. And finally, David leaves on this journey through the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives that we talked about last week. The same place he goes, he cries, he weeps, he prays where Jesus would go a thousand years later to pray for us and then go to the cross. It's during this time, we won't read it this morning, but he writes Psalm chapter three, where he cries out to God for forgiveness and he begins to rejoice of who God has made him even in the worst moments of his life. And then look what happens. It gets worse for David. He finds out that Ahithophel has gone to be with Absalom. He's been betrayed. Many believe, scholars believe, that this is what he writes about in Psalm 41, verse 9. And later Jesus would quote that same verse in relation to Judas betraying him. But then in verse 31, David actually turns to God. He doesn't turn to anger. He's not passive. And he begins to pray. He repents. He's humble. He's not arrogant. He isn't passive, but he's active. And he turns to God in the midst of his sorrow And healing begins to come. 
God provides for him really quickly. The end of the story, God provides for him another advisor, Ushai. And Ushai would prove to be a better advisor than even Ahithophel would be. And he comes at the very exact time that David needs him. Listen to me. God will always provide all that you need. If you do not get something, it's because, not because God is not faithful, but because you don't need it to be faithful to him. And if he does provide something, then it's always at the right time through his faithfulness. There doesn't have to be any doubt because not only does God ordain the end, but he ordains the means to the end in each one of our lives. The rest of the story goes like this. Ushai was sent by David to Jerusalem to advise Absalom and to join with the Levites that were left there. And so now David has this little team of people that are going to give insight to David about what Absalom is doing. Ushai ends up advising Absalom that he needs to wait and not attack David because he's not ready. He needs to grow in number and in people. And Absalom takes that advice and he just is living like it's completely peaceful in all of Jerusalem. He's actually riding around on his mule throughout Jerusalem, which kings would do during peacetime. He's not being wise. He's not prepared for battle. And some of David's men are sent in in chapter 18. And David is very clear. It's it's not at all a William Wallace speech. Like, let's take the world. It's like, let's go in and get Jerusalem back, but don't touch Absalom. Try not to kill too many people because like there, there are people. So he gives this really strange kind of commandment to his, to his men, but they go in and they find Absalom riding on a mule and Absalom runs and he ends up brutally being killed, even though David did not desire him to be. Joab takes his life brutally And it's all because Joab says that he knew Absalom would continue to do this over and over and over. A messenger brings the news to David in chapter 18, verse 31, and it breaks David's heart. He begins to weep. He wishes that he could have died in Absalom's place. But listen to me, it was too late. He always had the intention to make things right with Absalom but his pride wouldn't allow him to take advantage of the chances he had. Listen to me, all of us have really good intentions and the American way is to define our identity based on our intentions, but your intentions are not your actions and your intentions do not define you. Don't wait until it's too late to follow God. Don't wait until it's too late to surrender it all to him. Don't wait until it's too late to work through the difficult things and to be a peacemaker. Don't live by your intentions. Live in the reality of God's goodness and grace. Pursue him with all of your heart. But listen to me, I'll close with this. Thank goodness we have a father that is not a peacekeeper, but a peacemaker. And though we have rebelled against him and we have all run away and we've all fallen short of the glory of God, he came to take our place. He did not wish that he could take our place, but he came to die in our place. And then he rose from the grave to defeat sin and death and he invites us to come home to him. And when we come into his presence, unlike David, he does not ceremonially give us a kiss, but like Luke chapter 15, when we see the prodigal son, the father runs to the son, hugs the son, puts the robe around the son, kills the fatted calf, throws a party for his family coming home to know him. And that is what we can have in our father. 
We can be sons and daughters of the living God brought into his family. How amazing is it to be a human being who is rebellious but loved by the creator king?